friends, so here we are. Nice to be with you again today at Community Gospel Chapel. And uh, I have at least met many of you uh, different occasions. But in case you're wondering who I am, I will update it. My name is Stan Powers. I'm a husband, a dad, and a grandpa, among other things. Some of you may know some. My one daughter is uh, Lindsay Wall and just across the water here. And so some of you may have met her and four of my grandkids in your travels to Duncan, etc. I know some of you are very familiar with there. And I just usually crash at their house, came over for this morning uh, from there after spending a couple days on the island. So I serve in uh, ministry for the last uh, three years plus a little bit. Uh, before that, I was pastoring in Surrey. I took a leave from that church, and I'm in my sort of legacy years or whatever, uh, trying to make a difference. I work half-time as the regional director in British Columbia for our fellowship, our movement called the Apostolic Church of Pentecost, of which this church is a partner, and uh, enjoy that and spend time with pastors and churches and just trying to facilitate greater impact for the gospel through our for, through our movement. The other half of my time, I uh, relate to two African nations where we have apostolic church movements that have been founded many, many years ago by missionaries that went from Canada. And I get to travel to Zimbabwe and Mozambique and uh, do different things there. I make about three trips a year. I leave on February 11th for another stint in Zimbabwe. And while I'm in Zimbabwe, I will be uh, traveling with the ACOP bishop. His name's Banani Hadebi, visiting numbers of churches and different centers and teaching and preaching and just engaging. The world is a crazy place, and we have a front window seat to media today as to what happens around the world. Zimbabwe is a very needy nation in every way. I think about two weeks ago, if you happen to catch CTV, they would have brought a report that says the United Nations reports that the combination of the worst famine in 50 years and the dysfunction of the economy in that nation and the currency collapses means that by the end of February, there will be one half of the population, which is 8 million people, will have no food appealing to other nations to help. That's, the, that's a common story in many places, but, you know, I happen to have friends there, and I visit there. And our church in Surrey, we spent, for 12 years, we have engaged with that movement to do what we call orphan care. A million orphans from the pandemic uh, in that nation, and, on, and the church is the, is the most universal delivery system in the world. There's churches everywhere. And they, with nothing, try to help those with nothing. It's a phenomenal thing that God does. But the need is massive. It's big. So I ask as you ask me as I travel there, you know, write a note somewhere. Add me to your prayer list. Not me so much as people in those nations that need Jesus. Church leaders that try to serve with absolutely no resources. When you hit the capital city of Zimbabwe right now, you want to go somewhere? Well, you'll first 
unless you've got secret ways, which our pastors do, but the average person sits anywhere from four hours to four days in a line to get gas, and when he finally gets to the front of the line, they get to buy 20 liters. I mean, how do you, how do you minister? How do you serve? How do you get around? This is a country that at one time was very quite well-to-do. So if that, those are just the sorts of things. And all you, all you can do is bring the scripture and bring the word to them, encourage them, bring some money. There's never any end of the need. And uh, God's alive and working. And that gets to be my thrill. A couple of months later, I'll do the same thing in Mozambique. Mozambique's a whole different country than Zimbabwe. Great poverty, but busyness. The church is just thriving. Uh, they're planning churches every week. Uh, they're uneducated in lots of ways biblically, but they're just out doing it and making it happen. And it's, it's a great joy to just hang around. Harder for me to work there because in Zimbabwe you can cope with English and just simple translations into some of their tribes. Mozambique is a, uh, was a Portuguese, co- Portuguese colony. <laughs> I can't get anywhere near talking to anybody in Portuguese. So it's not just that you can't minister without interpretation, but you can't even visit with a pastor without talking it through. And I, I don't really do much, but it's like everything else in our lives. It's presence that makes a difference. You just sit with somebody and listen to them and talk, feel helpless, but they, God works something out. He encourages them. He lifts their heart. He lifts their eyes. He sets them forth. And so those are some of the fun things I get to do, which isn't why I'm here this morning. So that's good. Let's me pull up some notes here today. First of all, take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Psalm 119. And I want to read a couple of the first stanzas in that psalm uh, with you. And I will find it here on my digital Bible. I begin to read, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, whose walk in the law of the Lord, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man Keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, I just ask that as we talk about and read your word today, reflect in your your blessing, your 
grace, your mercy, your presence in our lives and in this house, this place, this room, that uh, we'll just hear from you today, collectively, but also individually. Uh, the voice of God, speaking, calling, drawing, moving, challenging, envisioning, enabling, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I forgot to ask how long I had. Do you want to tell me, Dwayne? 10 minutes, 30 minutes, as long as I want. Yeah, sure. How long do the children's workers like me to go? Uh, 22, that's a long time. Boy, that's good. Thank you. As a pastor, I've always been told to go as long as I want, but I don't believe anybody. (laughs) Um, Especially as a pastor... Um, I know that there's some people working with children in a room that if I uh, show a little too much latitude for what I think God's doing through me, that they're getting buried in, in uh, stuff. So try to keep it to that. I meant to pray for your, as I talk about him, you can pray for him, your pastor and his wife who are having a great time, I'm sure, in Israel and enjoying family time. And Lord bless you for releasing them and blessing them uh, in your life. So often when I travel and visit a church like I have in the past here, I, from my position, I usually bring a challenge that isn't necessarily pastoral, but it's, it's trying to stir up people of God to look outside their doors and look at their communities and organize themselves to make disciples of all nations. And that's usually what I feel my role is. But as I prepared for this week, I just felt a little different. I thought I'd just come and act like I was your pastor and bring a very simple reminder about the Bible, about the Word of God, about how to live your life centered in the Bible. 2020 has been declared, and you may be aware of this, I don't know, but it's been declared as the year of the Bible by a large group of people. In September, just a few months ago, mission leaders from 34 nations declared, let's make 2020 the global year of the Bible. It was endorsed by the World Evangelical Alliance, by Youth with a Mission, by Pentecostal World Fellowship. I was there. We had the Pentecostal World Fellowship gathering in Calgary, uh, in August, people from all around the world in the Pentecostal Word Fellowship, and that's where some of this was brought to my attention, and all 500 Christian leaders in 20 countries have come forward to englo- endorse the Global Year of the Bible. Uh, our president, ACOP, sent out a note a couple months ago to our churches, and he said this, in my devotional time, I recently read Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching and to teaching them, from 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul gave Timothy an apostolic directive to publicly read the scriptures when the church in Ephesus gathered together. In this global year of the Bible, I would like to encourage all ACOP churches to incorporate a public reading of the scriptures in each worship service in 2020. So we're trying to cooperate with this concept that the Bible needs to be put at the forefront of our fellowship gatherings of our personal life. And I want to remind you and talk to you about that from 
the scripture from my own personal life, and I know for many of you, you're already there, but somehow we have to stir it up in ourselves and in our world. I, we weren't able to show my slides this morning, but I have a picture here. I'm going to just turn it around and you can, you can just see it. This is a, a Bible that's in my office. You can see the red underlining of this Bible. It was my grandfather's Bible. Now, I'm a grad dad, so when I talk about my grandfather, I have a hunch some of you are wondering, wow, was that, what century was that in, right? My grandfather lived in a little town called Eston, Saskatchewan, my maternal, my mom's dad. He was a farmer, and he was a eccentric. Anybody have eccentrics in your family? He was a devoted Christian, but he was a nuisance in the local church. He had more opinions than anybody should have. He was an eccentric. One of his eccentricities, the positive side of it, was that he loved and believed that the Bible was God's word. His eccentricity part was he believed that only the King James Version was God's word. He believed it with his whole heart. He believed that God was working. For example, he actually believed that Eston, now a few of you know of Eston because our Bible college is there, but that was also where my grandparents lived. He believed that Eston was Zion in the Bible. Do you know any eccentrics like that? Are you one of them? You've got these theories and these ideas that everybody else just scratches their head about, well, that's how he was. But he was my grandpa. He couldn't really get along in the local church. He was always fighting with them. I I have no, I, I don't defend that. I just say that's the reality. But what he did was he took his tithe and he bought Holman King James Bibles by the thousands to distribute because he believed in the Bible. I went, when I went to Eston Bible College way back when, 140 students there, every one of those students, we already had Bibles, but every one of those students got a Holman leather King James Version Bible from him. And as I went into youth ministry, he would send me boxes. He couldn't get rid of his tithe through Bibles because he didn't know how to do it. Unless, okay, now this guy's out, my grandson's out there. I would get in the mail. I was in Sudbury, Ontario, my first pastoral work. I would get boxes of King James, Holman, black Bibles. And when I got mine from him, they always had one of those verses that we, we just uh, read Verse 9 of Psalm 119, he would always write it with his hand in the front. And I have it, he always wrote it in King James, and I can't even know if I can remember, but I think in King James it said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to his word. In the version I mostly use, the ESV, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So I was raised. And my parents were good Christians too. But I'm just picking on my grandpa this morning. I was raised with an, a, a great awe for God's word. And I can remember trying to read it. I remember writing him a letter. When I was probably 12 years old. 
Grandpa, I'm reading in Daniel, and the other guys got their names changed to the Babylonian name, and Daniel didn't, and why would that be? And he would try to answer me. He helped me to engage in God's word. Now, today, I mostly use it like this. It's not black. It's not Holman. It's not the King James Version. It's still God's word. What I'm saying is, though, I'm saying from a personal standpoint that God's word has always been important to me. And I'm trying, I know for most of you, you will have your stories as well. Where did you first learn about Jesus? How did you learn to walk with Jesus? What do you do every day? How does the Bible find your path? And it's still important today. Now, I'm part of a generation that knows that in our world today, we do have to be careful that to know where its place is. Because really, when one of my heroes, Billy Graham, would preach, the Bible says... It worked in North America. That doesn't work anymore when you're talking to your neighbor, really. You've got to talk to them first about Jesus. The Bible wasn't put in print and didn't really become prevalent until 1500 and whatever when the printing press was mad. But God still worked everywhere. Thousands and millions of people came to Christ because the people of Jesus took the message of Jesus and prayed and had oral stories to tell, and they could report, and they, 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 they started off uh, with the Hebrew scriptures, and they, they could read them, and they could talk about them. And when there was no context for that, we have in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul trying to draw people's attention. I'll come back to in a minute to, to the idols that were there on that Athens hillside, and trying to draw them to God the Father and to Jesus. And it doesn't start from the Bible. I've been raised in a generation in Canada that we could start with the Bible. Today, we can't really start with the Bible when we're out there, but when we're in here, we need to. (laughs) And when we're at home, I need to. And eventually, I turn and bring people to the Bible. So I'm I'm not trying to turn back the clock in terms of how we can reach our world. I'm not doing that today, but I'm trying to turn back the clock of my heart and yours towards the place where, because it's not the Bible that we learn about. It's the author of the Bible. It's, the, it's a love letter. It's a letter of instruction. And sometimes it feels like my grandpa, it feels a little eccentric in our culture today. Because we're raised in a culture and in an influence that makes us think that the things that are taught in the Word of God are kind of weird. But this is Almighty God writing His love letter to us. And we're a little weird in our particular value system today. And where do we find it? Anyway, I just want to talk to you a little bit of the Bible. I know you know all this, but I'm just trying to, to, to raise the standard again. Uh, today, we call it things like Bible engagement. That's what I'm saying today. What's your individual? What's your family status? What's your church status? What, what is your engagement with the Bible? And there's three areas that, that I want us to think about. And I've mentioned one already. I'm going to be very brief with that. It's the public engagement. So that's what... Uh, this movement is saying for this year, let's put the reading of the Bible back into place when we gather together. And whether it's in your small group, your host church, whether it's here, let's make sure the reading of the Bible uh, is, is part of what we do. 
There's the, also the, the personal use, and I think most of what I want to bring to you today and remind us about is the personal use of the Bible. Study to show yourself approved unto God, the calling. And I'm going to read a bunch of verses, and I might skip a couple because without the, the slides up above, you won't be able to catch it. But we're going to read some of the scriptures and talk about the scriptures. And I'm reflecting from my personal life more than anything else this morning. What has God used his word for? What does he want to use it for? And then we have the fellowship use. You sit in a... In your house church, you sit with your family on a daily or weekly basis and you read some scripture and you talk about it and you try to unpattern it. I loved your testimony today, brother and sister who talked about prayer and prayer for the sick. And that's what we need. We need to figure out and process it through our lives and out to others. That's the fellowship side of it, right? We sit, we talk, and we share. You provide opportunity for people to come here and talk about aspects of life that come from God's word. And as our brother unpacked uh, Psalm 24, you saw he'd studied it, he'd prayed it through, he'd worked it into his life, and that's what we're talking about today. How do you do that in your personal life so that it becomes part of who you are? In 2014, I forget which group it was, I had these facts, but I couldn't figure out where it came from, but there was a big study in Canada about Bible engagement in Canada, in the community, in the world. And uh, here's four points. They said in 2014 in this study that only 14% of Canadians read the Bible at least once a month. And just in 1996, which would have been 18 years before that, it was 18%, I mean 28%, I'm sorry. So when they do these surveys in Canada, they said in 1996, 28% of Canada Canadians would read the Bible at least once a month. 2014, it's... 14%, and you and I don't even want to know what it is in 2020, do we? We know the direction it's going. Our, our world has lost just even that concept of reading the Bible. Same study in 2014, 64% of Canadians think the scriptures of all major world religions teach essentially the same things. You know, in the old Bibles, we used to call them holy Bibles. We all know what holy means. It just means separate. It means unique, uh, unique. Well, most people, most Canadians don't think the Bible's unique. It's just one amongst a lot of holy writings from many different disciplines and religions and prophets. That's Canada. 69% of Canadians think the Bible has irreconcilable contradictions. I'm sure that's a much higher percentage even five years later. That's one of the reasons why I, I prefaced, although I'm wanting to catch your heart with the Bible today, I'm not ignoring the fact that when people come in the door of this fellowship to hear teaching or when they meet you on, your, on the street and they don't know Jesus and they've been raised in this culture without the Bible and you start trying to tell them about something from the Bible, their minds close because... They're amongst these. I think the Bible's just full of contradictions. It takes you up processing your testimony, your story, your focus on Jesus that's going to open them up and draw them to the Bible. The Bible's very seldom today going to draw them to Jesus without you being a witness to the resurrection of Christ, the transforming work of Jesus in your life. And in fact, the proof that they have to understand is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a miracle, 
And it's the one upon which Christianity stands. It's why the apostles were, they were identified when they went to identify a replacement for Judas. One of the main keys for the apostles was they had to be a witness of the resurrection. And you and I today, we aren't, we're a witness of the resurrection in a different way, in a historical and a personal way as the Holy Spirit has come to us. And so, so much of our world, far more now than 69%, I think. And then only 18% of Canadians strongly agree that the Bible is the word of God. That's Canada. Uh, but we sit in this room because the Bible has made a difference because of who wrote the Bible and who enlightens it to us, who teaches us from his words. And we've got a great advantage, and we need to make sure that we are pursuing this in our own personal lives much more. Anyway, got to watch this clock here. I'm getting a little sidetracked. Okay. I'll give you, I'm just going to, I'm not even going to read this verse, but there's, well, I will. Isaiah 55, 10 to 11, if you're writing notes. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55. That's the prophet declaring that the word of God is powerful. It works. It brings a harvest. Now that word isn't, it, it's God speaking. And in that context, it wasn't even just the manuscripts of, of the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish Hebrew scriptures, but it's, it's God's word that's alive and active as well. But we have it preserved for us primarily in what we call the 66 books of the Bible. Just a verse for you to put on there. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some of you got this memorized, don't you? I do, certainly. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. That's Paul's testimony to God's word. That's what you and I experience. That's how it needs to be in our life. It is profitable. It works to train us up, to reprove us, to correct us, and to develop our righteousness. It's God's word that works in that fashion. A couple more verses just to remind you. I know that these verses, when I write them down, I know that most of you have them memorized. You've got them, if you underline your Bibles, you've got them underlined. If you've got a plaque on your wall, you've got a few of these on that wall. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'm reading a book by Gladwell right now. I don't know if you know him. He's sort of a business author. He's kind of an eccentric-looking guy. He wrote some books like David and Goliath. He wrote... Uh, the Outliers, he wrote, I think his most famous is The Tipping Point. He's written one, one now called Talking to Strangers. And his point, it's a secular book, but his point is that we all couldn't know the truth if it stares us in the face. We think we do, He's got all kinds of studies. One of the studies shows how they've taken computers and compared them with judges in certain 
cases in the states and how they discern when people should be paroled or not paroled. And I've right now I'm going off the top of my head, but the the actual the judges fail miserably compared to the computer. We are fooled by body language. We are fooled by apparent sincerity. In actual fact, when I talk to somebody, uh, but in actual, uh, I, I really don't know them. I think I do. We all idealize ourselves very highly. I can tell when somebody's telling the truth. And we watch shows on TV. Or he, One of his big examples is the, the comedy sitcom Friends. He says, you watch them, you slow them down, you stop them. They have learned how to have their face muscles in just such a way that they portray great, the right emotion at the right time. He said, that's play acting. And they've learned how to do it. That's part of one of the great skills in our Western culture. But most of us, we really don't have a clue. And that's why I think we need, what this is telling me is God's word can see through all of that. And when we're talking about ourselves, God's spirit, his word's alive, and he can just tear me apart some days. When my wife, my, my wife's got lots of criticisms of me. Uh, she knows me only too well. She Maybe she's the exception to this whole concept, and your spouse is as well. But really, when somebody else comes to bring us correction, we resist it like crazy. But God's word doesn't let us get away with that. If we allow his word to work, he'll cut right through us. Does that happen to you? Of course it has. You wouldn't be here. The whole gospel, all have sinned, repentance, it's all tied to somehow the Spirit of God cracking our defenses, our self-concepts, the things we've been built up in. And Anyway, I, I'm going a little too crazy here. Let's get back to a couple more scriptures. Joshua 1 and 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. This was Moses' words to his successor. Where was he to find his core values? Where was he to find the wisdom to lead three million people? Where was he to find the capacity to take them in to conquer the land, to fulfill God's promises? He says, this book of the law, you need to meditate on it. And I'll come back and talk at least briefly about that in a few minutes. Joshua 1 and 8. No problem. Let me give you three more verses quick. I'm just, I just pulled from my, my memory and put them together here. Well, here, Psalm 1, 1 to 3 says the same thing as Joshua 1 and 8, doesn't it? It's the first song in the songbook that was compiled and Nobody's quite sure who compiled these songs. Some people think it was Hezekiah. We know that maybe half of them are written by David. We don't know. But however God did it, the first one starts off like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Like tree planted by water. So you know the you know the reference. These are the most well known verses. But sometimes when things are well known, we don't stop and meditate. <laughs> when I'm 
provoking you a bit to do today. One of my life verses, and I don't know if you have a life verse. If you're like me, you have three or six or ten. <laughs> you get old, you got a lot of life verses kicking around. But God did call me to be a spokesman of his word, to be a teacher of his word. And in that process, one of my life verses is from Ezra 7 and 10. Do you know Ezra? He was a teacher in the restoration of Israel back to the land. We have Nehemiah, the wall builder, but we have Ezra who brought the word back and made the word central to what was happening. And here's what it says about Ezra. Ezra 7.10. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes. That became a life verse, a life calling on me. I'm to study God's word. Then I'm to do it, obey, practice. Then I'm to teach. Fortunately for all of us, um, sometimes I teach things that I haven't really processed well enough. God can still honor that. And we spend our whole lives learning how to really do his word. So at what age would I ever start to teach? Man, there's some faith that we got to start. But we have, have, this is the process that has to happen one way or another. But it cycles in our life. Study it. Do it. Teach it. And Ezra understood that. And that's what makes you useful to God. That's really what Timothy verse told us as well. How do you become equipped to do God's work? It says the word is processing through your life and he's changing you. And in fact, that's an ongoing cycle. And so whether you're young and it's kind of your first time through, you just do it. You study it, you do it, and you teach it to somebody. And then when you get old, you've processed it a few more times. You're still studying it, doing it, and teaching it. And that's a, a call to anyone who's going to bring the word of God to others. Hebrews 4 and 12, I guess I already referred to that one. Um, I, I just wanted to give you verses. Now I just want to talk about, from my own experience about how this works. I was motivated as a young man to memorize the Bible. We have, really, I put four words here in front of my slide. Reading, meditation, memorization, application. Okay? Reading, uh, meditation, memorization, application, or obedience. I kind of skipped it there, but if you're familiar with James 1, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If you don't take the word from here to here, you become self-deceived. It's the plague on us Christians in church. We talk so much about serving Jesus that we think we're doing it. We talk so much about reading and believing the word of God that we think we're doing it. And in fact, we're just talking about it still. And so we can become self-deceived. We can think we got the most Bible-centric life in the world or the most Bible-centric church in, in the province or whatever. But really, just talking about it isn't where it happens. It's got to get in us and flow out of us and go on. And so we've got this reading. We've got meditation. We've got memorization. We've got application. So reading. Where do you read your Bible? I've had all kinds of plans over the years, but for 20 years now, I have used one Bible reading plan. If you're like me and you've got your Bible app on here, you will know that you can hit a button at the bottom about plans, and there's hundreds of plans that you can have. 
And in, in life, you uh, churches sometimes pick a plan and read it for Christmas, and people all read the same thing. And then you have your own personal reading. But in actual fact, it's a very important thing if you're going to be a Bible reader that you get a plan in your life. You know, this business of opening up the Scripture and pointing and reading and waiting for God to tell you something, eventually it doesn't work. Eventually, if you don't know where you're going to read, you never do read, right? So I've had different plans, but for 20 years I've used the same plan, and the plan's not what's important. The important thing is that you have a plan to read God's Word. Read it from beginning to end, read a chapter a day, do whatever. I use a plan that came to me from from uh, Wayne Cadero of the New Hope Hawaii thing, and he's got one that's called the Life Journal Plan, and they sell journals, which I don't use the journals anymore, but I still use the plan. And he called his plan a soap. You, you journal, okay? You read and you journal, however you do it. And his plan, and like I say, I've been doing it for 20 years, it's soap, S-O-A-P, taking the fact that water washes you clean. S means you're right on the top of the page the scripture that you read. O means you write a few observations about what was there. A means you write an answer to the question below at the bottom of the page. And when if you buy his journals and it says, how will you be different today because of what you've just read? What's God saying to you about application? And P stands for prayer. Uh, that's just part of my life now. And at the end, I'm going to talk about this morning's readings for you, for me. Okay, I'll come back to this. But you have to have a plan to read the Bible. And this particular plan, it's a little... Most people find it too much in their average life because if you read the, this, the, yeah, that particular plan, you read the Old Testament once each year and the New Testament twice. So you have some pretty significant readings in a day, and most people find that hard to do 30, 365 days a week. We all find it hard. We've got to go back and start up again. But you have to have a plan to read. And sometimes you, you just make your own plan up, and you say, here's the season I'm in. I need to do some psalms. And so today I'm going to read these three. Tomorrow I'm going to do... And you, you know where you're going when you sit down with your Bible by your fireplace in the morning or by your bed at night. Whenever you do your stuff, without a plan, don't go anywhere. That's the plan I've been using. And you just have to have a plan if you're going to read the Bible. And then you move to that next point that I'm talking about, which is meditation. That's an Old Testament word from Joshua and Psalms. And I'm sure you've heard the illustration before that meditation, the word picture behind that is of basically a cow chewing its cud. Okay? It's taking the word, storing it in whatever stomach they store it in, and bringing it back up later to stand in the field and chew it some more. That's meditation. Meditation isn't, oh, I read a whole book today. Hallelujah. I got through all of Romans in one day. I'm a good reader. Well, that's fine. That's a good start. But what are you meditating on when you're waiting for something to happen? What verse do you bring back and you start to think about it? Meditation is just that. It's just thinking. It's praying it into yourself. It's saying, what is God saying to me today? Uh, in my way of doing my daily time with God, I read all this stuff, and then I write down two or three of the verses, and then as I, as I write applications, sometimes when I get to the A in my journal, when I was a pastor of a church, that's what we did weekly as a staff. We did it together. We would, we would take 40 minutes, sit there quietly in the same room, do our devotions, then read them to each other. And that puts you on the spot, but it helps train you up to do it. If you don't have a little accountability and a little fellowship in this, you get pretty lost pretty quick. And so as soon as you start to write, all of a sudden something starts to work in your brain. Ever had that happen to you? 
as soon as you force yourself to actually say, I don't know, I've known this verse for a long time. I don't hear God you know, doing much, but let me just start writing about it. And as I actually write it, and I'm a lousy writer, I can't read my writing half the time afterwards, but that doesn't matter. I'm writing it down. Now I type it out lots of times. I do a little bit of both. This year I'm on a new, I'm going back to writing it by hand, but for a couple of years I've got some pages on my laptop and I just do it, do it on there. It doesn't really matter, but once you start to say, what, what are you saying, God? What do I get from this? I remember two years ago this, or I heard some sermon about this. You start writing, it starts to get personal. That's meditation, right? It starts to get personal. It starts, you start to hear God talking to you. And sometimes you're just talking to yourself, which often is not very far from God talking to you. Because God's put it all in there a long time ago. You've heard sermons. You, you start talking to yourself about this verse. And so meditation does that. Memorization is a hard thing. I memorized two books of the Bible when I was a young pastor. I memorized James and Second Corinthians. I've given up memorizing big parts like that. I don't think memorization itself is what works, but memorization is a path to meditation even, right? Because you've got to repeat yourself. When I was when I was trying to memorize the whole book of Second Corinthians, I'd have to have one day a week that I'd take extra time and go back to the beginning and try to say it through all the way. I mean, it's it's hard work, but it, it, it leads to repetition and it leads to meditation. Some people are easy to memorize. Some can't memorize anything. It's not a. It's it's just a pathway to trying to get God's word in your heart, which is what the psalmist said. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you. Getting it from here to here is a process of Bible engagement for us as Christians. I'm taking all my time, aren't I? I thought I'd quit before 22. Um, Okay, let me just go to something I want to call you out to today. So I did my devotions in my car this morning on the other side of the ferry. Made sure I got there early. Hoped I was coming to the right place today. Dwayne didn't answer my text yesterday. I said, Mike had told me I'm supposed to be there. I want to make sure I don't miss this ferry. And it turns out it's not hard to get on the island on Sunday mornings. Looks like it's pretty busy getting off. But anyway, uh, I got there early. And so I'd had a little time at home just to look at my notes again. But I I turned to my readings. My readings today and my reading were 1 Samuel 17, Psalm 8, and... Uh, Matthew 2. That happens to be my reading plan. So I've got my, my Bible open. I'm reading. Uh, and God starts to talk to me. And one of the things that jumped out at me, and I've done it so many times, you know what 1 Samuel 17 is, is don't you? David and Goliath. Remember that story? Man, haven't we heard about that a lot? I've studied it endlessly. But you see, when I look at it today, I'm trying to say, what's going on? And then I go to Psalm 8, and it's, it's all about offering thanks to God. Some of these songs we sang this morning were part of what that's about. I went to Matthew 2, and I read it through. And when I began to journal and think about it, the, the part of the David and Goliath record, there's so many things in there. I can preach for two hours on David and Goliath. I can talk to about how 
David wasn't such a small guy, how his slingshot and his the thing that he'd been trained up in was one of the main three ways that people went to battle, and Goliath really didn't have a chance. Didn't have a chance. I can talk about that. But the part that I was reminded about this morning was this. What happened when David went through all the work of talking to Saul, convincing Saul, putting on Saul's armor, taking off Saul's armor. There's, a whole, there's lessons in all of that for us. But the part that caught me this morning that I felt related to my word here today was when he started walking towards Goliath, he basically began to speak God's word. We might call it prophecy. True prophecy is usually has to be tied to God's word. Often it is just speaking God's word for the moment that's come alive for this time and situation. And I believe, I know that most of you, you probably have different experiences in the teaching and the practice of the being speaking words of prophecy or receiving them. I think, and I'm just going to throw a stat out there from my own brain that says, I think you and I should be prophesying, 75% of our prophesying should be to ourselves. Got nothing to do with what I think the time for this church is. That's That's a piece of it. What I think a time in your life might be. It's I prophesy to myself to get my faith working. And as David began to face Goliath, I guess I'll just try to pull it up here again and remind you of it. I know that you know it. But when he went to battle, I believe he already had superior weapons. He had a projectile weapon that could penetrate from a distance this big, ugly uh, foot soldier. He had a better weapon already. But there's still fear. There's still challenges. He had believed God. He believed God was on his side. He had, there were skeptics, but they were going to let him take the run for it. Saul's going to send him out. His brothers are standing back looking at him. He's taking steps of faith. He's ready to step forward. But as he began to do it, he began to basically to prophesy and to speak God's word and his faith out loud. And I think he was saying it to himself as well as to the... Sorry, I, I should have had this more available, but just this morning, sitting in my car saying, Lord, what's, how does this appeal? What does this work for today? And as he began to move, he began to say, first of all, there's other lessons in there, right? It wasn't like it was his first, his first circus. He'd faced a lion, he'd faced a bear, he had a track record of what it meant to serve God, and this was just another one of those things. And as he faced the Philistine, the Philistine called him a dog, and he just said, you come to me with a sword and a javelin and a spear, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host. On it goes. He's prophesying to himself. He's prophesying to his enemy. He's taking God's word and some of the application of God's word that had brought him to this moment to apply his faith. And he's speaking it out loud, and he's moving ahead, and it's recorded for us here. I think Goliath heard it. don't think he understood a thing. 
I don't know if Saul understood a thing. I don't know who heard him. But in his life, he went forward with the word of God. And so that's my kind of application for you today. You got a problem? You got 20 problems? You got God stirring something in your heart that says, I have to, I, 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 I'm called to do, do this, to bring correction to somebody, to raise my kid, to be at work with this person, to overcome this sickness, to face this financial challenge, to have this enemy, this Goliath in my life. Who's got a Goliath in your life? We all do. But there's certain seasons where we really do. And there's a bunch of things we can learn and practice and do that can come from this record or any others, but part of it is this. Speaking God's word, stepping towards the enemy, speaking God's word. And if it's not already in your heart, if you haven't already resourced it somewhere, if you haven't already sat on a hillside like David and sung unto the Lord, and you've got it in your heart and it's flowing in your brain, and all of a sudden it comes alive with this particular challenge, that's when you begin to speak it and it empowers you to do what God's called you to do. And it accomplishes his purpose. I often look at that story of David alive when I read it this morning. I just have all this stuff I want to I want to switch sermons, but I knew I didn't want didn't couldn't. I probably preached on that here anyway sometime. But God's destiny for each of us is through our problems. God had already laid his hand on David. Samuel had anointed him. He somehow knew that out there, there was a call from God on his life. And he could have just sat around and waited for God to do it. But that's not the way God works. Passivity. Waiting for something else to come on the corner. David's empowerment to defeat the Goliath opened up. It wasn't the final opening. You know the story. <laughs> he had a few years. But most of us think that our way to God's calling on our life is around the problems or to wait for them, somebody else to deal with the problems. That's what Saul was doing. That's not the way it is in my life or yours. The way to God's destiny in my life is through the problem. And the way through the problem includes the word of God coming alive, me speaking it, and walking after him. And whether we're praying for the sick like our brother was talking about this morning, we don't know. When he lists off those four things, what happens to most of us, we crawl under the seat, especially when it talks about raising the dead, right? Because it can't be us. Whatever God does, it's him. But what do we do? We take his word. We're practical about it. We're honest about it. But we, faith has to take another step. We speak God's words. I don't know what your Goliath is today. And I've just kind of give you a bunch of background. But in the end, I want to say, stand up. Hear God's word. Speak his word. And move ahead in Jesus' name. Because David, he just was proclaiming the faith and the word that he had.
That's what empowered him. That's what moved him forward. That's what allowed God to work in his life. So I don't know what your Goliath is, but go away this morning. Uh, take some time apart. Uh, shake off passivity. Subject fear to God's spirit and his call. Just deal with it. I sort of think David still, I don't know about you, but, you know, little and big things, I still go into them all the time with fear. But obedience calls us to step forward anyway, to face it, to proclaim God's word, his promises. That's your call this morning. He's got specific things for each of us in this room. Let's do it in his name. I better quit. I think I passed the time. Kids are, teachers are sending the kids back in for their parents to look after them. So I'm done. God bless you. I pray for you in this church and your community. Encourage you to just keep serving Jesus and letting his word impact other people. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you, Stan. Thank you. Hang on a sec. Um, you know, Stan said that he's he works half time now. I, I don't believe that. I think he's still going hard and and uh, bless his heart. Um, I've known who Stan was for many years. I've gotten to know him a little better these past few years, and and the man he is, and I know that he loves his father, his heavenly father, and and every time you meet people like that, you get a little more encouraged to to step out a little more, and uh, and you've done that for me, Stan, and I thank you. I, I just, anybody, I'd like to pray for Stan this morning. Anybody who, who feels that they'd like to come up and pray, um, give them words of encouragement to love on him, to, uh, yeah, if you'd come up, and we're just going to lay hands on Stan and Um, I have my glasses on. You're going to have to read it for me. Um, I was in the Word this morning, and this is confirmation because it really stuck out to me. And he was pressing on me. It wasn't just for me. So whoever's got glasses, if you can read that, that's what I wrote out. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Amen.